What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God is the one who did not spare the very child of God, but rather for all of us handed the Messiah over. Will not God with Christ also give us everything else? Who then will bring any charge against the elect of God? God is the one who justifies. Who will condemn? It is Christ Jesus, the one who died. Moreover, the one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor powers that be, nor things that are, nor things that will be, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. All right, y'all. I didn't do this before, so I better do it now. My name is Jonah. <laughs> My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm the lead pastor here at Zao. Um, this passage from Romans, you know, Romans can be complicated. Paul can be complicated. I know I do this a lot, but anybody here have complicated feelings about Paul? Extend those complicated feelings to Romans, because Romans <laughs> has some, some passages that have certainly been used in troubling ways, right? But man, it's got some bangers. There, so like, in this short passage, there are two faves. So Cameron our executive pastor who's not with us today, um, Cameron's favorite verse in all of scripture is contained in this, in this short passage. For I am not, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers that be, like nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's something that Cameron holds really close to his heart. And for me, it's, I, won't, I won't call it the top. It's not even top 10, but it's a really good one. Who can be against us? Now, this might be my little Enneagram 8 coming out. <laughs> Fight me. Um, <laughs> if you don't know the Enneagram, you're, it's great. It's great. But um, I have a personality type that's always, like, ready for a little bit of a, a rumble. And, <laughs> and so this is the part of me that's like, okay, but, like, who actually can come for us? It, there is no condemnation in Christ. And that's something that I hold close to my heart because there's a lot of public condemnation of who I am a lot of the time, which I know I'm not alone in experiencing in this room. But like most verses that I remember and hold and treasure, <laughs> it's connected to music for me. So I have a confession to make. I went through a Christian ska phase. Now it started innocently enough, Five Iron Frenzy. Who, who could fault me for Five Iron Frenzy? Uh, but it escalated from there. Um, I mean, in my defense, I was in fifth grade. And Nate S. was really cool, and he lent me his Insiders CD. But that led me down a bit of a rabbit hole, and eventually I started listening to the OC Supertones. Now, if, if you're not following all of this or any of it, it's great. You skip that phase. You're in a different subculture. You did, you did well for yourself. But for me, 
my little 11 year old self is like bopping to the trumpets and like kicking and punching because that's the dance that goes with it and kind of yell singing everything I touch just falls to pieces seems like everyone I help just falls and how I need someone to make me feel assured I don't need anyone if you're on my side Lord and I say hey who can be against me and then the chorus in the background shouts no one <laughs> and I found it really comforting honestly it appealed to my shame and frustration I was just about to enter middle school I had a lot of big feelings and was pretty isolated. And let's be honest, I was a couple years out from like Alkaline Trio and Saves the Day and eventually Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> and those of you who are chuckling in shame right now were with me in that. It's a more mainstream emo moment. For the rest of you, again, well done. But I was very deeply uncool in middle school. And eventually in high school, I kind of harnessed that into a punk rock rebellion vibe. But in middle school, I just felt alone. I just felt alone. And, and so there was something like really comforting about saying, I don't need anyone if God's on my side. I don't need anyone if you're on my side, Lord. And I say, hey, who can be against me? And that would... That would be echoed years later when I was in campus ministry <clears throat> with this kind of like, I don't need anything but Jesus energy, right? Has anybody been in that place? Like, I don't need, I just want Jesus. Uh, you know, there's, there's a song, I just want you, you know. There's, this is like in the Jesus is my boyfriend genre of Christian music. This is the Justin Bieber track that's like, we could be starving, we could be homeless. No? No, Bieber? Come on. We all had a Bieber moment. That was collective. Anyway, as long as you love me. But it is this highly individual, who can be against me? Who can be against me? Except that that's not what the scripture says. The scripture doesn't say, who can be against me? The scripture doesn't say, who can be against me? The scripture says, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And this is an exceptionally common trope in American Christianity. Taking something communal, something social, something structural, and winnowing it down, paring it down, until it is an individual moment of personal encouragement. Now, that's not even bad in certain moments, right? Like, we can hold the encouragement of God for our individual selves. There is a blessing in that for each of us. But if that is all it means, then all of a sudden, when I say, I don't need anyone, I have actually exited the kingdom promise, right? Who can be against me? Now I've actually pitted everyone against me. But if we say that God is for us, therefore who can be against us? We start to wonder who is us? How us can become all of us? How that question can be rhetorically answered, no one is against us because us is all of creation. And there is no one outside 
of the promises of God. Now, in this moment, Paul is understanding that us isn't really cohering as a team just yet, right? Paul is talking to deeply oppressed people under the threat of violence every day. People called heretics or apostates, violating norms of empire and religious hierarchy. When Paul is talking to the followers of the underground Jesus movement, he's specific about what they're up against. He names affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword. And he's also clear about who's perpetrating this violence against them. Powers and principalities, it is most commonly referred to as. This translation calls it the powers that be. And so here we have Paul understanding that the people of God are actually up against something enormous, something life-threatening, something so overwhelming. And yet, Paul reassures them, who can be against us? God is for us. And what Paul is doing here is asking us to zoom out of this moment. This happens a lot in the scriptures. Our individual Christianity, because it isolates us in our own life narrative, really focuses on how my day is going to turn out, how my life is going to turn out, and then how my eternity is going to turn out. But the scriptures from beginning to end, are a lot more concerned with all of creation, with all of God's people, with the narrative arc of the cosmos. A lot of the promises in the Hebrew scriptures are not you individually will be saved from this time. It is, don't worry, you might die, but God's people will go on. And that, in that context, was really comforting. Why is it worthless to us now? What about that do we reject now in favor of, well, whatever happens to the other people, I'm saved. This is a sickness woven through American exceptionalist individualism that has infiltrated our church, that has infiltrated our teachings and our communities, that has separated us from the promise of a people united of a people saved through solidarity and love. Because you might wonder, how? How is it that God is for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we can answer that question pretty easily right now. I got a list of people who could be against us, Paul. There are some people who have some ideas. They're trying to draft that into legislation right now. And it can feel really overwhelming. It can feel really overwhelming. Queer and trans people are right now the topic of conversation across legislatures in this country. Queer and trans people are being turned into tools to divide and oppress. Queer and trans children are very vulnerable right now to this moment where legislators have decided that the way that they can get their cut of the resources is to throw queer and trans children under the bus. And it can feel so overwhelming. 
There have been times in our history that have been incredibly violent. And so we know that we have the, the capacities, right? We know where this can go. We know where it is now, which is terrifying. And I think in our bodies, generationally, we remember just how violent it can get. And you layer on more and more intersecting identities of oppression, and it becomes really scary really fast. And so we can be tempted to pull this verse out of context and say, who can be against me? Who can be against me? And yet we are invited back into the us. Who can be against us? We are the beloved children of God. There is no condemnation. And this is one of the things that Paul is really clear about here. No one can condemn you because in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. And this is the language that's getting thrown around, particularly around gender and sexuality, is of condemnation. And Paul is reminding you, no one has the right no one has the right to cut you off. Because this is the attempt, right? This is what the in-groups do is they say, let's narrow the us until it's acceptable. Let's narrow the us until there are fewer of us to compete for resources. And the way we do that is we exile anyone we can categorize as other. Now that is a logic that permeates all kinds of oppression. But we are invited as people of the margins. We are invited as followers of Jesus. We are invited as resistors of empire to remember that the true us here is our createdness. The true us is the cosmos. The true us is connection and solidarity and love. Now this is a theme of Lent. Lent is this, you know, several week period leading up to Easter where we are invited to move through a narrative, through a story, to be present to the beginning, middle, and end of a snapshot of God's movement in the world. And so not only do we join Jesus as he marches toward Jerusalem and the cross, but we also, as we've done in the last couple of weeks, go all the way back to Genesis. Where did this start? Where do we come from? We come from the earth we come from the ashes. We are molded into unique individual beings who are part of one another, taken from one another's sides. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, we will say to one another when we meet again in the end, just as we did in the beginning. But the second act is getting a little dicey, y'all. It's rough in here. And one of the promises of Lent is that we will reach the end, which is resurrection. But Lent never, I love this about Lent, Lent never asks us to skip to the end. Lent never asks us to forget our suffering or our oppression. Lent never asks us to pretend that things are okay just because one day they will be made right. This is a moment of narrative tension we will get there in a couple of weeks, but this is the moment where Jesus is coming in, triumphant into Jerusalem, declaring victory, and then pauses to weep over Jerusalem. Jesus knows the end of the story. Jesus knows resurrection and kingdom. He's been telling about, us, uh, telling about it a lot. 
And so we need to know it too. And yet, that doesn't mean that we don't weep and wail and rage. That doesn't mean that we aren't victims of oppression. And so in this Lenten moment, we are asked to hold it all together. And because it is so much easier to be present to the pain of this moment, because it is so much easier to feel overwhelmed by the powers that be that are bringing the forces of death into this world, because it is so easy to feel absolutely and utterly hopeless in the face of these mechanisms of death that are being written into policy every single day, that are being marched through the street in police forces every single day, because it is so overwhelming, this present moment, we are asked as a community, to remind one another that this is not it. That also, alongside, in and through each of these moments, is the victory of the love of God. That in all of these things, we are completely victorious. Now, Will Gaffney, in an attempt to reorient us away from the militarization language of modern Christianity, has changed um, her... English interpretation from the more classic, more than conquerors, to more than victorious. But I want to revisit that more than conquerors. Because what if we understand it to be, we are more than conquerors, right? Not that we have conquered so much that we're like extra conquery, but we are more than the victory. Because one of the sins of the second act of the history of the cosmos is this idea of being against one another. This idea that there is not enough to go around. This idea that we must conquer and colonize. It is such a theme of history. It is one against which many of us are trying to push back. We're trying to undo (laughs) some of the violence of our forefathers. We are trying to recover from some of the violence of, our, of generations of oppression. We are saying conquering, survival is not enough. We actually want more. We want more than what conquering can offer. We want more than what colonization can offer. We want more than what white supremacy can offer. We want to be whole. We want to be healed. We want to be together again. We want to find the us that contains each and every part of me. Each and every part of you held and honored, celebrated, protected, and whole in the context of all of us fighting for one another. And if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is working towards the reconciliation of all things, who can stand in the way forever? If God is bringing life into our bodies and into our communities, then how can the mechanisms of death stand? And so, that logic of exile, of banishment, that carceral logic that says that some of us can be thrown away or trampled underfoot or robbed of our culture and identity. We reject that 
because that is about separation from love. And as Paul reminds us in this moment, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is the very life breath inside of us. It is the thing that mixed with the earth to bring us into being. And so, neither death nor life, nor angels nor the powers that be, nor things that are, nor things that will be, nor powers, height, depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ who redeems us. We talked last week about fruit, about rooting ourselves in the ground, about being a forest together, and about bearing the fruit of love. Now, anytime we get into that flowery language of love, it can feel, you know, a little, a little wobbly. But love is solidarity in action. Love is the remem- remembering of who we are. Love is feeling that that earth source that made us is contained in all creation, that we are all stardust together. Love remembers that victory is more than conquering. It is healing. Love remembers that it can never be cut off from itself, that we will never be abandoned. We will never be isolated all the way. We will never be completely alone. And so, in these moments where some of us are feeling very persecuted, where some of us are struggling to be the fullness of who we are because of supremacy culture, where some of us are not valued, whose lives are not valued for the true beauty that they contain, we hold as well a collective memory, a memory of where we come from, where we are going, and what the victory of love feels like, looks like, tastes like. Now, these little pep talks, they only come when we need them. The scriptures offer us this encouragement, not just because it's nice, but because we need it. And we need it not just because we're having a rough day, but because it's really hard to be alive in a world of empire and oppression. One of the accompanying texts um, in today's readings that we didn't get a chance to touch on directly, Jesus is offering kind of a warning and lament, saying like, when stuff goes down, it's going to be really rough. Pray that it's not winter. Flee to the mountains. And he says, woe to those who are pregnant or nursing, which is not a curse, but but a a lament, an acknowledgement that there are some who are more vulnerable to oppression and empire. And we know in our communities that marginalization can be layers on layers on layers. But we also know from the God who comes first and foremost to and through the margins that there is hope and more than victory there. And that actually it is to the margins that we flee. And so in those moments where you are feeling under attack, in those moments where your loved ones are under attack, in those moments where it feels like the powers that be have got it all on lock, know that it is actually your 
disjointing from empire. That is the indication that you are more connected to love. That is the, that is the reminder that you are one of the entry points of love into the universe. Because if empire has discarded you in any way, then the one there holding the pieces is God and God's love. If empire is fighting for your identity, and I want you to know this about any identity you hold that is privileged, there is a war. There is a war for you between love and power and the powers that be. But the parts of you that empire has tried to lay aside, those parts are held exclusively then by God, by love. And so we flee to the margins. We flee to our own marginalized identity to remember that those pieces that don't fit into empire, those are the keys to the kingdom. Those are the blueprints for the world that we are building in the love of God. And nothing, nothing can separate us from that promise. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you know that we all toil and suffer and struggle. Your scriptures tell us that men toil in the earth. We know that even in our privilege, we are caught up in a world not meant for thriving. And yet, you give us keys to the kingdom, those pieces that don't fit neatly into empire, those promises of your love that show up in many and different ways. God, may we hold closely to those things. God, may we remember that we are a body, we are a people, we are yours and we belong to one another. And it is in solidarity and love that we will never be cut off, that we will never be condemned. God, your promise extends to each and every one of us. May we gather in our kin, starting with those who are the most vulnerable, but extending throughout the whole cosmos until we are healed, more than conquerors, made new in your love. Amen.